Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. see everyone today and all of you uh, viewing online with us as well. With Pastor Tony out, I get the honor of filling the pulpit and preaching the word. So if you don't know me, I'm Chuck Patrick. I'm the campus pastor of the Creekside venue here at Silverdale. So if you would grab your Bibles, your smart devices where you can locate the outline or the app on your phone as well, and you can look up a message from God and you'll have the outline there. So If you would imagine for me, if God were to write on your Facebook wall, okay, he would post something, would you be like, what if he posted whatever he wanted, posted your deepest, darkest secret? Would you try to hide it? Would you you try to block it? Would you be like, oh no. What if God wrote, whatever he wrote, would it hijack the narrative of what you're leading people to believe about yourself? Listen, in our text today, Daniel chapter 5, God literally writes judgment for an individual and actually an entire nation on a wall for all to see. So in Daniel 5, I like to look at it as sort of a combination of Stephen King and Game of Thrones It presents us with this terrifying tale of blasphemy, judgment, and death. And historians tell us it all happened on one tragic night, October the 12th, 539 B.C. So, if you are reading in your Bibles, chapter 5, verse 1 there follows the last verse of the last chapter we studied last week. But that little half inch there represents about 20-something years in our study here, which is important later on, as you'll see. So first thing we want to see here is this setting, the blasphemous setting. If you're taking notes in your phone, your outline, the blasphemous setting here. Our text reads this. Belshazzar, he had set up this big feast. And so he says, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king drank from them, and they praised their gods made of gold, silver, bronze, wood, iron, and stone. So, uh, by the way, when you saw concubines, it's basically sex slaves. So anything and everything was going on sin, rebellion, blasphemy at this major wild party of this king of Babylon. So, blasphemy. Here's a, here's a picture from the artist, 18th century artist John Martin of Belshazzar's feast. And I know you just get a glimpse, 
but it's kind of an eerie picture trying to cover all the terrible things that happen in there. Blasphemy. Webster says blasphemy is the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God or irreverence towards something considered sacred. Now, so from our text here in Daniel 5, I want us to look first at the utter deaths of Belshazzar's blasphemy. So you'll see a phrase repeated three times in this chapter here. So obviously the Holy Spirit's trying to make a point about this. Verse 2, you'll see the vessels taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of God. Or one day in the future, us as Christ followers will live in a place called the New Jerusalem. So they're taken from a pretty special place. Then verse 3, the vessels taken from the temple, the house of God. Throughout the Old Testament, God only appeared occasionally. And it was particularly once a year in the most holy place, in the tabernacle, which was the movable house of God, or the temple, the stationary house of God. And only then to the high priest where they would offer sins to a holy God. So these were taken from the house of God. Then later in the chapter, Daniel confronts Belshazzar, this wicked king, with this. He says, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and you brought these vessels of his house before you. So what is so significant about these vessels? Why would God repeat it three times here? So first of all, from God's perspective, the vessels were sacred items to be used only in the worship of true Yahweh God and only in his house, the temple, and only by his anointed priest. Now, secondly, from man's perspective, particularly the Jewish captives, you realize they're, they're t- deported, they're exiled from their homeland in Jerusalem to a foreign land, Babylon. So this, these were a tangible symbol of Yahweh God's promise of restoration for them. Now, I want you to see this promise in Jeremiah. The vessel shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Beautiful, powerful phrase in Scripture about God interacting in the lives of human beings. When I visit them. So what's he going to do? He says, then I will bring them back. I'll bring them back and restore them to this place. So those captives hung on to this promise. Now, this promise from Jeremiah is so beautiful because two chapters later, he writes what many of us know is one of the most familiar verses in all the Bible. Some of you have it on plaques in your home, maybe on Bible bookmark. It's where Jeremiah quotes God saying, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So while that's such a beautiful promise, it was specifically given from Jeremiah to the exiles. He actually wrote a letter and sent it to them. So they're hanging on to this promise. I love what the Story of God Bible commentary says also about these vessels. As the only tangible remains of Israel's pre-exilic life with God, the vessels lay at the center of the hope for restoration. So bound up in the sacred vessels was the promise that God would remember his people. So these holy vessels were profaned by this wicked king who also mocked the God they represented. So how about us today? What do we blaspheme, profane? How about a cross being burnt, the symbol of our faith? Come on. What about 
someone destroying, defacing a church where people worship God. Let me go a little deeper. Here's a beautiful verse from the New Testament from the Apostle Paul at 2 Corinthians. He says this, we have this treasure, the treasure being Jesus through the Holy Spirit living in us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, not this, but us. So the Bible, for us as New Testament saints, the Bible refers to us as God's vessel, his house. Another passage, Paul says, you are his temple, his very temple. So are we desecrating God's vessel, okay, by using his temple here, his, our body, mind, and spirit, in an ungodly, sinful way? Your thoughts, your actions, you realize the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you if you're a Jesus follower. So do we profane God's vessel by abusing or neglecting a human being, another human being made in the image of God. Think about that. We are his greatest creation. Look what C.S. Lewis says. I love this. The uh, 20th century theologian, the Chronicles of Narnia guy, he says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which you'll be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people you've never taught to a mere mortal. I think Lewis gets it. See, do we see people, uh, no matter what the color of their skin, no matter what economic state they're in, no matter what their physical abilities, do we see them through Jesus' eyes? Do we look at everyone we come in contact with as someone who Jesus died for? All right, we see the ultimate extreme blasphemy from Belshazzar. So obviously, it elicited an immediate response from seemingly out of nowhere. So in your outline, you put the supernatural message. The supernatural message. And we'll break this down into two parts. The first thing, the hand of God writes. The hand of God writes. In recorded scripture, we have three times God wrote with his finger. First, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, on those stone tablets, God wrote the law for us. Now, much like those first stone tablets were broken, we have all broken God's laws. We can't meet up to the standards of the holy God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The second time God writes with his finger is our study today. He wrote judgment, for the wages of sin is death. The third time he wrote with his finger you got to hang on. That's coming. So the hand of God writes. The text says, suddenly, immediately after all this blasphemy going on, God steps in. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall. Now, here's another rendition from the artist Rembrandt of that. A little bit closer focus of Belshazzar's. And obviously, he's trying to depict that, but can you only imagine his shock and awe? So maybe to help you think about what's the, the most you've ever been afraid in your life? Think about that. Maybe you were a child lost at the mall. Or maybe you were huddled down in your house during a tornado. A lot of people can relate to that. Or maybe you were riding Everest at Disney. We were heading up, all of a sudden the whole thing stops, and ahead of me and my buddy was a track here that was all mangled and messed up. 
okay? By the way, if you got little kids haven't been there, close their ears, next 20 seconds, spoiler alert. So I'm sitting there, kids behind me are, are kind of telling their mom, Mommy, Mommy, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm thinking, kid, it's Disney. Tinkerbell is going to suddenly appear, wave her wand, and everything's going to be fine. Great ride. But no, <laughs> the thing starts going backwards. I don't do backwards. Was I afraid? I was very afraid. Afraid all Disney's going to hear me screaming like a girl. Afraid I'm going to puke over everybody. It was horrible. Was I afraid? Very afraid. But maybe some of you, all right, when you were taking your girlfriend home an hour after curfew, you saw Daddy on the porch with a shotgun. Yes, we do it right in Tennessee. <laughs> so, Belshazzar sees this uninvited guest, a disembodied hand floating around. Can you only imagine the fear in his heart? Well, you don't have to imagine because the inspired Word of God, we have the most descriptive account of a person who was afraid in the Bible. Look at this verse. His face turned pale, the blood's rushing out, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. Yes, it's clear. Now, if you love the King James, it's a little more proper. It just says his loins were loosened and his knees smote each other. See, so this guy, he's terrified, panicked, freaked out, horrified, all the above. So what does he do? The next verse says he shouts out. Now I'm thinking he's shouting for toilet paper. Of course, they're saying, it's all out. It's quarantine. <laughs> but of course, he doesn't shout that. What the Word of God says, he shouts out for all of his wise men, all the sorcerers. Get those guys. Tell me what's happening. I'm freaked out. Bring them in. So we know the story, like we've seen in our previous studies. The wise men come. They can't figure a thing out. And so he's still scared. But suddenly then, we have the interest of the queen mother, who's probably his mother or grandmother or mother-in-law. She hears this, and she comes in and says, Belshazzar, don't you worry. She begins to tell him about an exiled Jew who was really good at solving mysteries. So I want you to get this. She makes a very significant, profound statement about Daniel. In your text, we read, verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And you notice that's a small s spirit there. So she is, is pagan, as most of the Babylonians, pagan. They worship false gods, uh, Baal, Marduk. They're all false gods. So, but here's the point of this. She sees something about him. Now, how many of us, we work with people, we go to the gym, we go to school, but young people who are not believers, they're all around us. Can they see a difference in us? Could someone say, man, there was a spirit about her. Even though they wouldn't know it's the Holy Spirit, well, they know a difference. So a few years ago, I, I was at the gym working out, and I had met a guy, and I wanted to kind of get to know him. So the next time I saw him at the gym, I asked him to help me with some stuff. So I said, hey, where you work? He tells me, and he asked where I work. Well, that's my open door then. So I said, hey, I'm one of the pastors over at Silverdale. He goes, dude, man, I knew there was something about you. So I'm like... Is that, is, that, is that good? Is that okay? He goes, oh, dude, man, I, I just knew it. So I said, listen, come and visit with me. Well, he goes, well, my family and I, we go to Mount Canaan Baptist. I said, man, that is a great church, great church. He says, dude, man, I knew there was something about you, man. And he says, you know, you lift good too. I'm like, pastor man. 
But then he goes, for your age, <laughs> spirit left me. The point is, we're at school, work, our neighborhoods, at the, at the store, around people, without God, seeking God. Do we have the spirit about us that is the capital S, Holy Spirit, living out his fruit, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, where they can see that and want more, where we can tell them. So Daniel here obviously had the capital S spirit in him. So he was located, brought to Belshazzar. Well, they begin exchanging some introductory remarks, which I thought was quite interesting considering that this brilliant, amazing Daniel for all these years had been in the kingdom and Belshazzar didn't know him at all. Think about that. But then you think about it, it's really revealing when you look at the depraved state of affairs of Belshazzar's kingdom. So Daniel begins to give him a history lesson, focusing primarily on the incredible uh, riches to rags to repentance story of Nebuchadnezzar that happened 20-something years ago. And then Daniel repeats a phrase that we studied last week, repeats a phrase he'd shared 20-something years ago to Belshazzar about God's sovereignty. He says, Belshazzar, the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over whomever he wishes. One of the most beautiful foundational verses of God's sovereignty in scripture. God's in control. He says, Belshazzar, you're not. Then Daniel lowers the boom with his reckless yet sad verdict of condemnation. He says, yet you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. That's a key phrase there. You knew all this. What? Yes. He had been around those years. He had seen Nebuchadnezzar, who went through his period of rebellion. Then he finally, as we said last week, recognized God. You knew this, Daniel says, but the God in whose hand, uh, using the play on words, whose hand are your life and breath and your ways, you have not glorified. Listen, I don't know what God's message to you is. Maybe he's telling you, if you're watching me online, if you're here with me, he's saying, listen, you have wondered from me, I'm telling you, come back. Or maybe you're not a Christ follower. And he's saying, choose me, surrender to me. I will give you life, abundant and eternal. Or maybe you are in willful, disobedient sin. And God's saying, stop. It's not worth it. It's not worth your life. It's not worth your family. Stop. I don't know God's message to you. But I do know what the word says. I do know that what, what happened to Belshazzar when he did not repent. It's a beautiful Jewish story of a rabbi and his students. And one student asked the rabbi, I said, Rabbi, when should a man repent? The rabbi goes, the last day of his life. So the students were puzzled. And another one says, well, Rabbi, a man can't know the last day of his life. The rabbi says, the answer is simple. Repent now. Now, the Bible says, today's a day of salvation. Belshazzar had his chances. Now Daniel interprets his faithful judgment. And he prefaces it with, the hand that was sent by God to write this tells you this. Here's the interpretation. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. That's where we get that phrase we use today. Your days are numbered. Tekel means you've been weighed in the balance and found deficient. Perez means that your kingdom has been divided and given to 
the Medes and the Persians, that new empire rising up, the Medo-Persian Empire. So all we know of Belshazzar's response is he he puts a, a, a robe around Daniel, a gold necklace. Then he exalts him to third in power in the kingdom, which is significant in our future weeks of study here. So then judgment came. In your outline, you can put final judgment and future hope. Final judgment, yet, I should say, future hope. Verse 30, we read, that very night, Belshazzar was killed. No more chances. Had chances before. If God's given you a chance, today, now is the day. Repent. Then we read verse 31. Now, I want to focus on this verse here. Because it's interesting that how God wraps this whole study, this chapter up, with this one simple verse here. So what historians tell us, the very hours this wild party of Belshazzar is going on, the stormtroopers of the Medo-Persian Empire were literally attacking and taking over the city. So while we know not all Bible stories end happily ever after, as only the writer of Scripture, the author of our salvation can do, He concludes this tale of gloom and doom and and blasphemy and death. He concludes it with a verse, a beautiful verse of hope. And actually this verse signified a a defining moment in Jewish history and for each of us as Christ followers who are grafted into the line of Christ. So I want to read that verse again. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. And at that one small verse, the Holy Spirit packs so much into it. There's a what, when, and who in this. So I want you to say they all point to the verse Daniel earlier shared, the sovereignty of God. God's in control. Look at the what, the received. You see that word received? Biblical scholars say the Holy Spirit was so intentional about that. He could have easily said Darius captured or he conquered the kingdom. No, he received it, inferring God's alluding to God's sovereignty that God had and God lured to give the kingdom to him. Then look at the last part of the verse at the age of 62. Now, what would be significant about telling some dude's age? All right. Remember the, the date 539 BC. You backtrack 62 years. You come to 601 BC. What was happening in the world at that time? 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and captures Jerusalem, takes Daniel and hundreds of the Jewish people captive, okay? 597, 586 BC. All those periods were three times Babylon came down and got more people. So a dark period in their history, but a baby was born. I think, and the scholars say, God's saying, listen, even when you don't see me working, I'm working. You know that song we sing? God was working. Who knows that in this dark time in our nation, our world, there may be another Billy Graham being born or being raised up as a child. Or maybe a Martin Luther King or maybe a Mother Teresa, someone who's going to take a stand like Daniel. So now I want you to see this, the who of that verse, Darius the Mede. Now, this is important for you to understand because There's not a lot of archaeological evidence about Darius, this Darius. And most of the studies show that this Darius is the same person as Cyrus, the Persian. You realize this is a joint empire, Medo-Persian empire. It's a joint empire. 
that would last, on this point, 200 more years. So, and there's a possibility that scholars say that Cyrus could have a sub-ruler of Darius. Either way, think in your mind, Darius slash Cyrus. Same person or singular purpose here in this empire. So, in 1879, one of the greatest archaeological finds was made, the Cyrus Cylinder. This contained Babylonian inscriptions from Cyrus the Great about his, his kingdom. I should say Babylonian Persian inscriptions there. So in that were so many things that corroborated and confirmed Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezra, Ezekiel. It's incredible. Things that we already knew was true from the Word of God. These just confirmed it. So in there, Ezra, okay, Ezra, you read the book of Ezra? Ezra was a, an exile. Ezra writes this. Look at this verse here. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation. And he says he put it in writing. And now this is Cyrus, the pagan king, speaking. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem, the city of God, in Judah, the tribe of Jesus. Pagan king, temple of God, fulfillment of prophecy. Only God. Remember I said earlier, the Bible records three times where God wrote with his finger. First, the Ten Commandments, the law. Okay, secondly, judgment. Now, this third time, this is good. This is awesome. Look at the Gospel of John with me. At dawn, Jesus went to the temple. He stooped down. Get that? He stooped down. Don't you love a God who stoops for us? We can't reach him. He stoops for us. Jesus stooped down and started riding on the ground. Now, that whole chapter of gloom and doom and judgment, God ends it with that verse about Cyrus here ordering the temple rebuilt. Get this. This very temple where Jesus is riding on the ground. By the way, that's God going to his house. It's God's house. So that very temple that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon had destroyed years earlier, the very temple that Belshazzar had blasphemed the symbols of, that very temple that the pagan king Cyrus had ordered rebuilt, and he also funded it and sent the Jew, Jewish people back home to worship. That very temple, now Jesus comes in and he is writing another supernatural message for a broken disgraced young woman when I see that I think a lot about my mom most of you know the story she lived a, a horrible rebellious life in my childhood years uh, her addiction alcohol uh, it was tough but yet remember Nebuchadnezzar he had those seven years horrible time and then he came to his senses and recognized the true God now think about my mom she had 30 days in a coma at Erlanger Medical Center came out of that trusted Christ so I think about her, I think about this woman here in the story, the adulterous woman. They wanted to kill her. She lived a horrible, rebellious life. Her life's at an end. She's full of sin. And what does Jesus do? He writes. Now, we don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground that day. We do know what he wrote on her heart, like he wrote on my mom's heart. He wrote grace. Man, what an amazing God. So listen, I don't know what, what message God is giving you. 
Maybe he's saying, repent today. Maybe he's saying as a Christ follower, I'm asking you to do something and, and you're holding back. Man, step out there. Follow me. Obey me. Listen, wherever his message is to you, let me ask you, what is God writing on your wall? What is God writing on your heart? Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus's final words to his disciples in the upper room. They are about to enter the darkest moment in history and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.